Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. That's all you got today, but don't worry. It's going to be fine. We still have two hours of going against the grain here. And uh, as usual, a lot to get into, a lot to uh, get into that we have been sitting on for the, you know, waiting for the right time to get into over the past week. But the first thing to mention here, I think, is that UK Home Secretary Priti Patel has finally made her decision. I mean, as she would put it, it wasn't really much of a decision, but she has approved the extradition of Julian Assange to the United States. And this decision was issued with a pretty defensive statement uh, that UK courts have not found it would be unjust to extradite Assange or that extradition would threaten his human rights and his health, despite, of course, all the evidence presented to the contrary in those courts. Uh, the Home Office was also at pains to say that the Home Secretary couldn't have issued any other decision under the law because she's not actually allowed to consider human rights questions. Courts have already decided those. That's what they are saying. Um, it makes me wonder why, if that was the case, why did it take so long to issue this decision then, right? Other than just to drag out the time that Assange spends in Belmarsh Prison, slowly losing his mind. The Assange team has 14 days to appeal the decision to the UK High Court. WikiLeaks immediately said they would do so. So this is not the end of the road legally for Assange in the UK. It is also not the end of his unjust detention in Belmarsh Prison for the crime of embarrassing the United States. We are going to talk about this throughout the show, of course. Uh, I was heartened to see at least a couple of Australian MPs call the decision an outrageous betrayal of the rule of law, media freedom and human rights. Uh, a couple of them called on new Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese to speak directly to the UK government to end the matter. But that is all we've gotten so far from the Australian government, even though Albanese himself last year is said to have said enough is enough with regard to Julian Assange and said he failed to see what his ongoing imprisonment really achieved. Now, his government just says they've conveyed their concerns about his well-being and their insistence that he be looked after to the UK and the United States. And what more could they possibly do? The usual voices have chimed in to condemn this decision, of course, among them some politicians in the United Kingdom. As far as I can see, no currently serving U.S. politicians, but, you know, I could be wrong. Maybe one missed my attention. However, sort of throwing a very interesting spanner into the works here is Jean-Luc Mélenchon in France, who said if he ends up with the prime ministership of that country after Sunday's vote, Julian Assange will be given French citizenship and, uh, you know, honored for his work. I do not now see anyone predicting the alliance that he leads will win an outright victory, but I suppose nothing is out of the realm of possibility. And so perhaps a new twist is possible in this, you know, endlessly shameful saga. So we have that. We also have a look coming up at the election that Colombia will be holding on Sunday. We will talk about whether we should be preparing for more food shortages in the United States. We'll talk about what's come out of this week's January 6th hearings and whether, in fact, it's going to be dangerous to air all of this potentially criminal laundry if no serious court action happens afterward. 
We are going to talk about a new report on migrant children in the United States and the immigration decision the Supreme Court has punted on and lots more. There is also an incredible Washington Post editorial about the death of Shireen Akla that we missed a few days ago that I just want to point out really quickly. The Post has also done an investigation into her death. So following CNN here, uh, and it says... It finds that she was not killed by an errant bullet of Palestinians, that it was not a Palestinian shooter standing between her and Israeli forces that drew the fire that killed her, but that it was a bullet from a member of the Israeli Armed Forces weapons. That is what killed her. Of course, that's been, you know, concluded long ago, but the Post had to do its own investigation. So it lays out all that. And then the Washington Post says the whole incident could have been avoided, but for a wave of West Bank based Palestinian attacks that killed 19 Israelis, most of them civilians in the six weeks before Ms. Abu Akla's death and to which Israel was responding. So, guys, your journalists wouldn't get killed if you would just acquiesce to your own, uh, you know, oppression and slow genocide. It also presses Palestinian authorities to hand what evidence they have of the crime, namely the bullet, over to Israelis, saying, we don't see how Israel could manipulate the process if U.S. experts were indeed involved at every step. And hey, guy, if you don't see it, I feel like I could see I could see that I could see that as maybe a thing that might happen. So, yeah, the Washington Post, which uh, was recently crowing about the renaming of the street in front of the Saudi embassy here in the in Washington, D.C., uh, renaming it Jamal Khashoggi Way, uh, really not finding uh, very much to castigate Israel over when it comes to the death of this American citizen and journalist. So I thought I thought we shouldn't close the week out without mentioning that. We are going to take a quick break now and come back to talk a little more about Julian Assange and talk about the election coming up in Colombia. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte, and we are going to take a look at Colombia's presidential election. But I want to talk a little bit about this Assange decision first with our guest. We're joined by Wyatt Reed, a Sputnik News correspondent. Wyatt Reed, I believe you're in Bogota, right? That's correct, Michelle. Cool. <laughs> Lucky you. Uh, it's good to talk to you. I know we, we are going to talk about the Colombia uh, presidential election, but I know you have also obviously been following this, uh, the case of Julian Assange. Uh, and I, I wonder what you think of Jean-Luc Mélenchon uh, saying if he wins, if he wins the French election, the parliamentary election, if his um, block ends up taking a majority, which they are not predicted to do, but, you know, is within the realm of possibility. Uh, Melanchon saying he'll solve this whole problem by making Assange a French citizen. I mean, that would be, you know, that that would be an answer to a lot of people's prayers. Yeah, I, I think so. Although, I mean, it's not entirely clear what that would, how that would impact the case. I mean, in this, in this case, it's, it's become pretty clear that the U.S. doesn't really care what even its, you know, English-speaking so-called allies care uh, or think about what mm -hmm. they're doing, uh, what popular opinion in Australia or 
England is doesn't really seem to factor into that decision even from their own governments. So, uh, you know, what France would be able to do, uh, I'm not entirely clear. Uh, I would say Melanchon should maybe, uh, uh, you know, look into upgrading his security a little bit because, uh, you know, this, <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, when you get into, when you look into what exactly happened to Charles de Gaulle, for example, when he started uh, kicking out NATO, refusing to host uh, American troops, uh, uh, on their bases that were being sent to Vietnam. Uh, well, then you start mm -hmm. finding out, uh, you know, <clears throat> it looks like there have been some CIA involvement in, um, you know, these these coups that were carried out against them. I, I I found out, you know, and this is something that people don't know about, but the goal, yeah. <laughs> I think you're I think you're exactly right. I think that in this statement issued by the Home Secretary, one of the she was like, here are the categories that I can, uh, you know, that, that I can act upon to not approve this decision. And one was the intervention of a third country um, saying, no, you we don't want you to do this to our citizens. So like in the realm of possibility, I think it could it could provide a fig leaf for the UK to then just hand them over to France and, and make the whole problem fall into their lap. But yeah, unlikely. Still, you right. know. It's worth crossing your fingers at every opportunity, right? Yeah, and just knowing what we know about this current uh, UK government, Priti Patel and Boris Johnson, uh, I mean, it's become pretty clear that there was something of a coup uh, carried out within London, within the UK, to ensure that uh, these particular people uh, maintain power, to, make, to ensure that this uh, Brexit vote went uh, as uh, some small group of elites really wanted. There's been some great reporting coming out from the gray zone on that story particularly. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, in this kind of new media environment where everything seems to be controlled, where anybody with a conflicting opinion is either a so-called agent of the Kremlin or is simply criminalized for the crime of doing journalism, uh, I'm not terribly optimistic. Uh, I wish I could say that I, I was more, but I, I think it is important that people don't give up hope entirely that uh, we still maintain there is some possibility of freedom of speech actually continuing to exist. Well said, Wyatt. Let's talk about Colombia. We've got the runoff presidential election there on Sunday. We have Senator Gustavo Petro facing off against conservative black horse Rodolfo Hernandez. Uh, I'm wondering how both of the candidates have changed their campaign tactics for the runoff because it wasn't the expected pairing. And so I am wondering if, if uh, in particular, Hernandez's outsider status is something that Gustavo Petro has had to shift gears to address. Although I also expect that the sort of establishment right has lined up behind him. So you've got sort of two angles you have to take. Uh, what has the campaign been like leading up to this election? Yeah, so it, it was a bit of a pickle, I think, for the Petro campaign, how to respond to the uh, Hernandez being the con the contender that was going against him. Uh, it was expected to be uh, Fico Gutierrez, this very right-wing, very uh, open sort of continuation of the Uribistas, the, the, uh, the Duque government that currently controls Colombia this very uh, far-right, extremely corrupt uh, government, that uh, he that candidate did not make it into the second round. Instead, they had Rodolfo Hernandez, uh, which was understood, you know, and, and very much presented, especially in the mainstream media, as uh, he's a populist. He's a right populist, and they say that Gustavo Petro is mm -hmm. a left populist. Uh, frankly, I'm not sure how much of that I'd buy. It, it only took a few hours 
uh, for uh, the news to come out that that uh, Gutierrez had not made it into the se had not made it into the second round before he endorsed Hernandez. So you know, for as much mm -hmm. as a, a distance that they try to maintain publicly, I think it's pretty clear they represent some of the same forces. Uh, Hernandez mm -hmm. has uh, not. I wouldn't say he has necessarily shifted his tactics. Hernandez, his main tactics this entire time have been to kind of um, present himself as this. Uh, sort of social media phenomenon that uh, kind of a maverick political figure um, mm -hmm. and that, you know, he's mm -hmm. promising that he is going to take on corruption, uh, which I would say, you know, might be news to uh, a lot of the people of Bucaramanga, you know, this uh, city where he was mayor, uh, where he was accused on numer numerous occasions of engaging in corruption himself. He was, in fact, indicted on corruption charges. A lot of people <laughs> point to just these empty promises that he made to uh, get control of that city. He promised to build 20,000 homes for the poorest residents. Those homes never materialized, but the votes for him uh, by those residents surely did. And uh, so, I mean, this kind of gives you a sense of, of who uh, Hernandez is. He's, he's known for kind of being violent, being uh, pretty misogynistic. There's a, a clip of him just uh, slapping a city councilman in the face for saying something that he didn't like huh. in a very public setting. Um, and, you know, there's, there's clips of him. He's maybe not a terribly uh, deep intellectual thinker. He opined publicly uh, on, uh, on his, or he, he kind of, uh, waxed nostalgic for, for Adolf Hitler on a radio appearance yeah. saying that, um, that, that in, in Germany, there was a great man, a great thinker, and his name is Adolf Hitler. Um, and he later went on to say that he meant to, he meant he was referring to, uh, Albert Einstein, which is kind of a, a leap in terms of uh, names, but uh, yeah. that might give you sort of a sense for Rodolfo Hernandez, the candidate, being presented as kind of this wild card. Uh, on the other hand, you have Gustavo Petro, a uh, longtime senator with this Pacto Historico party. Um, he, a lot has been made of his uh, former links to the M19, the Movimiento de 19 de Abril, uh, movement of, of the 19th of April, uh, this leftist guerrilla group who's perhaps best known for their siege of the Palace of Justice in uh, the 1980s. And that, of course, uh, was responded to with a serious, serious crackdown by the military, which left about half of the justices dead. Um, and, you know, it, it later came to be known that uh, it was almost entirely the fault of the military, all these deaths uh, that they used pretty indiscriminate force, even rocket launchers and that sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. But so, so that that has been used to kind of color Petro as this very left-wing firebrand. Uh, the media focuses on this kind of concept of you know, if Petro gets into power, he's going to convert Colombia into Venezuela. That's what he wants to do. He wants to be Hugo Chavez. He wants to be Nicolas mm -hmm. Maduro. Uh, frankly. I, I don't see that, and I think a lot of people don't either. Uh, he's very publicly distanced himself from the governments of, of Venezuela, especially uh, Nicaragua, uh, Cuba to some extent, um, and kind of modeled himself closer to the more social democrat sort of vision we see from people uh, like uh, Gabriel Boric in Chile, uh, and has promised 
to kind of create a a block of uh, more progressive countries in Latin America that wouldn't be full on leftist. You know, he'd be uh, collaborating with with countries uh, like Chile, and uh, this is uh, I think I think the reality of the situation is is that Petro isn't isn't a socialist uh, anymore, or he isn't isn't really a far left force. Uh, he's more sort of the the hope and aspirations of this kind of broad coalition of of left, liberal, uh, and progressive sort of forces uh, who are looking for an alternative, um, and they don't necessarily need that to be the most radical alternative possible, uh, but they do want to to move beyond. Really, it's it's close to four or five decades of of the continuation of the same kind of uh, governance, which uh, you know. We see sort of some in the Western media, at least. We see a great amount of trepidation uh, towards this possibility, uh, and and we see a lot of kind of myth making from the mainstream media in terms of what Colombia is. You know, we've seen the Economist kind of uh, biting their nails about you know the end of democracy and uh, Latin America. Mm-hmm. We see the Washington Post. Uh, there's a there's a choice phrase from an article they published today. They said Colombia has long been seen as one of the most stable democracies in South America, and a key ally. Some have expressed concern about how a Petro presidency could change that par- partnership, particularly when it comes to combating the drug trade. Well, any change that Petro makes uh, to how Colombia combats the drug trade would have to be good, because Colombia is far and away the greatest source. Of cocaine in the entire world, and has been for a very long time. Uh, whatever efforts they, you know, have been pursuing have not uh, have not succeeded in eliminating the drug trade. Although they have succeeded in uh, consolidating the power of a lot of uh, far right paramilitaries and a lot of drug dealers uh, and a lot of uh, mm-hmm. politicians here in Colombia. Uh, so you know, I, I do see. Uh, you know, a, a lot of the times I, I make less about what these politicians uh, say about themselves than I do about what the mainstream media says about them. Uh, and in this case, mm-hmm. I see uh, a lot of concern that uh, that Petro could be uh, ruining our, our wonderful, the wonderful bedrock of democracy here uh, in Colombia. Right, right. What do you make also of these accusations before voting has even begun that the count might not be trustworthy and that, you know, Colombian electoral authorities might not be neutral? Are these accusations coming from both candidates or at least both of, uh, you know, their their teams? And is there any reason to believe them? Well, at this point, they are coming from from both teams. Uh, I think in the case of the Hernandez team, that may just be sort of a response that they that they are pushing out. They feel, well, the cat's already out of the bag. Um, the mm-hmm. toothpaste is out of the tube. You're not going to put it back in. So we may as well kind of uh, take advantage of this situation and just say, well, if there's fraud, it's coming from them. Uh, we know uh, from the first round, there were a number of denunciations from the Petro team regarding the uh, software used by the CNE, uh, the the um, Consejo Nacional Electoral, the National Electoral Council, which is produced by a private group, a non-government group, uh, has not nine uh, the the Petro team says they haven't been allowed to audit that software. In fact, 
Nobody has uh, audited that software from uh, an, a critical perspective. There has been there was no international audit allowed of the software. Mm -hmm. Exactly how that could be used remains to be seen. There are a number of tactics that are used in Latin America to manipulate the vote. Uh, that would be a big one to use sort of the software to uh, manipulate the figures behind the scenes. Uh, another concern is kind of vote buying, where uh, people offer money to, uh, you know, generally poorer people, um, and they will have them uh, basically take a picture of their ballot or something, some some method of proving that they voted as they said they would, and then they receive compensation mm -hmm. for that. Uh, there are concerns that this could happen, and there are serious concerns that if the election is stolen, that it could result in widespread protest and sort of uh, <clears throat> mass unrest. Um, and I think there are some forces that are pulling for this. Obviously, uh, hmm. the the uh, you know no, nobody in, in at least openly is going to say that this is this is what they want to come from this situation. But there are, there are definitely um, people on the right who would make uh, hay out of this and and be able to prove that um, that this you know this is uh, how the left wing reacts and acts and this is just sort of who they are uh, and there are even people sort mm -hmm. of on the the liberal left side who have basically encouraged people to either not vote or to not participate because I think they resent um, the possibility of of some left, uh, more institutional left coming into power and thus you know, kind of taking away from their influence as well. And that's some of the student groups as well. Mm -hmm. um, so there are certainly forces who I think would like to see this election devolve into chaos, uh, but I don't get the sense that that is coming from high up, certainly not on, on the, the Petros. Let me ask you one more question before we let you go, Wyatt. Do you want to make a prediction as to the result? Uh, it seems like, you know, the reporting has them all neck and neck. I wonder if in Colombia uh, the feeling is any different. Well, I, I haven't been here long enough to get a, a serious, you know, and I haven't I haven't really left Bogota. A lot of the votes are mm. going to be, for Petro especially, are going to be coming in from more rural areas. Um, those will take mm -hmm. longer to, to arrive, take longer to count and um, take longer to up, uh, uh, update the total to reflect those votes. I personally don't, <laughs> I, you know, just following the polls, it does seem neck and neck. A lot of these polls do tend to undercount those rural populations, those without, you know, as, as ready access to internet and cell phones. But uh, there is certainly a fear um, from many on the left that, that the powers that be, that the registraduría, uh, you know, the, the, the voter registration uh, folks who uh, seem to have been responsible for uh, over a million votes not being counted in the legislative elections in 2018, there seems to be quite a bit of uh, concern that those folks are very pro-right wing, are effectively, you know, were put into power by uh, Uribe by Duque, and that they will ultimately try to swing this thing in terms of uh, simply disqualifying voters. Uh, that is a big concern, and a lot of people have expressed a lot of, 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 of skepticism 
and really simply don't think that the right wing will allow them to take power uh, democratically. Uh, and it remains to be seen. Obviously, you know, as, as I mentioned, this is a country that hasn't seen uh, left-wing governance in decades. Um, and there is a lot of, of justifiable, from my perspective, uh, uh, concern with, with the direction of the country. Uh, it's certainly the most likely sort of all the, all the, it's a kind of a perfect storm for things to go in Petro's direction, which I think is a big part of the reason why the right wing coalesced behind this, you know, so-called right populist. They realized that uh, mm -hmm. the winds of change are blowing and it's either going to be us or them. Um, so I think that we will see a lot of, uh, of, of right wing consolidation around the Hernandez vote, whether it's enough to stop this uh, growing movement of left liberal progressive forces, uh, this coalition, the historic pact as it's called, whether it's enough to stop all of that remains to be seen. Yeah, certainly it sounds like enough uh, to, to generate quite a lot of resentment and potential instability right after the vote. Well, Wyatt, we will talk to you on the other side. Uh, we'll, we'll talk to you again on Monday there uh, in, in Bogota. That was Wyatt Reed, Sputnik News correspondent. Thanks for joining us, Wyatt. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits. We are live in D.C. We're on Radio Sputnik and we will be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte, talking now about a new analysis showing what seems to me to be the truly uh, hideous waste of life that happens every year in the U.S. factory farm system. Joining me for this conversation is Jim Goodman. He's board president of the National Family Farm Coalition. Jim, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Michelle. So uh, I want to talk about this Guardian analysis that found more than 20 million farm animals in the United States die before they can even be slaughtered, right? So they are dying in the horrific transport conditions that they endure. The Guardian looked at publicly available data and found that about 20 million chickens, 330,000 pigs, and 166,000 cattle are dead on arrival or soon after at abattoirs in the U.S. every year. Uh, another 800,000 pigs are calculated to be unable to walk on arrival. And this, to me, sounds like a, a moral catastrophe, right? Like li living waste on a scale that is really hard to contemplate. I have a couple more details. Uh, official records of how the animals died are not published, but vets and welfare specialists the Guardian spoke to told them the main causes were likely to be heat stress when the weather is warm, freezing temperatures in other seasons and trauma, you know, perhaps caused by slipping and falling uh, in their own urine in these transport vans, because sometimes they are carried for 32 hours without a stop, sometimes for more than two days at a time, if they are coming from Canada and heading to Mexico or heading from the eastern United States uh, to the southern border. The animals, of course, uh, don't get any food, water, or other relief sometimes during transport, even though there is one law that is supposed to make that happen. And so I'll stop there, Jim. And I, you know, to me, 
this is surprising and upsetting. I wonder if it is surprising to you. Well, yes and no. Um, it's surprising to me that people could be that callous mm-hmm. and have that little regard for livestock. You know, as a farmer all my life, most farmers I know really, um, really value their stock. They really care about them. I think uh, the the horrendous treatment they get after shipment, you know, at that point it's kind of out of the farmer's hands. He loads them onto the truck and they're gone. And from there on, it's the it's the the, the processing plant that bought them that that are responsible. And as the article mentions, the only law that that would protect these animals was written in 1873 when uh, the, the the food chain was much different. Mm-hmm. Shipped on trains, and they could stop from time to time and let them off for food and water. Whether they did, we're not really sure. But um, you know, that's just something that that just basically can't happen anymore. First of all, because animals are shipped in trucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do you stop along the way between the farms and the slaughter plant? Uh, biosecurity laws are pretty much going to prevent that because no one wants animals. Uh, to be unloaded on their facilities, uh, there may be some disease spread. So the laws protecting animals are just really totally inadequate. Yeah, I was going to ask why, you know, why we don't have more such laws and why we don't have any enforcement. I think the enforcement question you've just answered, um, I'll note that this law in 19, or sorry, from 1873 says animals are supposed to be unloaded and rested for five hours and given food and water if any journey is longer than 28 hours. It doesn't cover birds. So chickens, you're out of luck. Um, but The Guardian said, even though it found a, quite a lot of evidence of violations, it didn't find any um, prosecutions. And I think that probably has to do with the fact that, yeah, we're, we our our sort of uh, highway shipment system is not set up to accommodate this. I guess the question that I then have, though, is why have we not updated legislation, right? Why have we not created uh, facilities that can make this happen? Oh, I think mostly it's because of money. And as the article mentions, uh, the consolidation in agribusiness is, is uh, it has a lot of power. And when four companies basically control 50-some to 80, 90% of all the beef, pork, and chickens in the United States, um, they, don't want, they don't want regulations. Mm-hmm. They want to make money, and having to stop and unload animals for food and water and rest uh, costs them money. Mm-hmm. And we also have to realize that as the system has become more consolidated, Animals do have to move farther because there are fewer and fewer processing plants and they're bigger and bigger. Um, I just read uh, in the last day or so that that Smithfield, the the largest pork producer in the country, is closing uh, or probably going to close their processing plant in California because of the new Proposition 12 law passed in California that does actually regulate the way pigs, uh, the amount of space they have to have in their their, uh, farm pens. Mm And Smithfield said, there's just too much red tape. We can't put up with it anymore, so we'll close the plant. Well, that means animals are going to be hauled even farther. Yeah, and I I have to also think that this consolidation is what facilitates this extremely cavalier attitude about waste. 
Um, John mentioned on the show last week how profligate we are with our water. You know, we keep toilets full of clean water just to sit down on and spoil. And we maintain our lawns in the desert and and tolerating this uh, amount of of animal waste feels like an expression of the same thing uh, that when these companies can become so consolidated, you can you know, you can tolerate incredible waste in pursuit of profit. And so I wonder if you could talk about that, about like what, what happens uh, to this idea of being able to waste living creatures uh, when you have such hyper consolidation? Well, I think those numbers you mentioned in, in the beginning of the number of animals that are dead when they arrive, I mean, that's a lot of animals, 20 million chickens, 300 and some thousand pigs, 166,000 cattle. But that's such a small percentage of the number that actually do make it to the processing plants. Mm -hmm. When you can write off that many animals, to me that says you're just way too big. Mm -hmm. for, for farmers that, when I was farming, for farmers that I knew, the loss of one animal was tragic because not only did you hate to see it die, but that represented a fair amount of money. Yeah. When this industry is so consolidated that they can have this attitude towards animals, not to mention, you know, they basically have the same attitude towards the people that work in those plants. Yes. You remember back in the early days of the pandemic when the Smithfield plant closed down in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, because there were so many workers sick. Uh, before it closed down, they were forcing those workers to come to work, even though they were sick. And there were stories that plant management were taking bets on how many workers would get sick or potentially even die. Mm -hmm. It's not just the animals they don't care about. It's the workers. And in reality, when it comes down the line, it's the farmers either. You know, the farmers, especially in the chicken industry, are pretty disposable. They they make hardly any money. Uh, the money all goes to, to uh, Tyson Foods or whoever owns the chickens. Mm -hmm. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. It, it, the these attitude that everything is expendable extends, you know, beyond these animals. And you're right. You know, the the context we should put those numbers in, as you as you said, it sounds like they are. They are objectively huge numbers. But all of those numbers, uh, 20 million chickens, et cetera, represent a, a fraction of a percent of the amount of animals that make it to slaughter, right? Which just shows, I think, that this is, yeah, it is an industry that is too big. It is individual entities that are too big. And I wanted to ask you to, you know, this consolidation has happened uh, in a country that is supposed to be uh, against monopolies, right? And that is supposed to be engaged in creating, uh, you know, fair competition. And yet, you know, the U.S. is dominated by what, three three big meat producers? And I have to assume that the, the reason this has been able to happen is because of the extremely cozy relationship between these producers and uh, the agriculture departments and agencies that are supposed to regulate them. And I, I wonder if you could speak about that. Well, I think that's, uh, that's exactly right, that, you know, when the industry is so consolidated and there's so few players that wield so much power and influence, um, if you want to get elected to Congress, you don't want to be on the bad side of them. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just in agriculture, as you know, it's that way with, with pharmaceuticals, with energy, uh, whatever the, the commodity is, there's so much money and power in play that politicians uh, have to play the game with them. The other story that I wanted to talk to you about is um, this story in the Pennsylvania paper, The Morning Call. 
that says record diesel prices are crushing farmers in Pennsylvania. And I have to imagine not only there. You had lobbyists for the Pennsylvania Farm Bureau testifying that diesel prices could lead to food shortages if farmers can't afford to run the machinery they use to plant or to harvest crops. It notes that average diesel fuel prices Tuesday in Pennsylvania were $6.19 a gallon, 75% higher than a year ago. Uh, This is according to AAA. And the front page of the Washington Post today, you know, has a story about how the Biden administration is is trying to figure out a way to uh, bring people some relief for high fuel prices, including diesel prices. And so I wonder, you know, are possible food shortages, and I don't mean like, the people in America won't have enough to eat, but shortages of particular foods, at least at first, are, is this an exaggeration or are producers really on the brink of disaster? Um, I, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration. You know, the average person, when they fill their car with gas and they buy 20 gallons and they pay over $100 for it, I'll just stretch that out a little bit to the farmer who may fill his uh, barrel on the farm that may hold a thousand gallons or more at basically the same or higher price. Yeah. And uh, yeah, how do you how do you make that equate with the prices you get paid for whatever it is you're producing? It just it just doesn't pencil out. And at best, you can hope that this year will be a year of loss that you'll just be able to survive and hope for a better year next year, which unfortunately farmers seem to be doing all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as food shortages, we don't know. Uh, I guess coupled with high fuel prices and farmers maybe not being able to to get their their crop work done, uh, we still have the weather to contend with. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> you know things just don't don't look good for a, uh, a a good year for for farmers or consumers. We we have no idea what'll happen. No, and yet somehow it seems like it'll probably end up being a good year for the the massively consolidated companies that are sort of you know, in between those two entities, right? It is interesting. I mean, the pandemic was a, was an enormous challenge for, for farmers. And then we started to have this recovery. And now we have this, you know, sort of rolling economic catastrophe. And I wonder what you think the, the landscape of American agriculture is going to look like in, in the aftermath of these two disasters. Well, uh, I guess if I could answer that question, I might be a rich person. Um, I don't think it's going to look good. Um, it seems that consolidation continues no matter what happens. Um, there are efforts in, in Congress now to pass laws to limit consolidation, to put a moratorium on mergers. Uh, whether those will pass is kind of doubtful because the, the people that are, are sponsoring those bills are all Democrats. Um, one has to think that you know this party line vote on everything is going to continue with uh, Republicans voting against any bills that would limit consolidation and would would actually make things better for farm prices or consumer access to good food. So you know I, I hate to be uh, constantly pessimistic, but uh, I guess that's kind of the way as a farmer and just an ordinary citizen. That's kind of the way we're conditioned to be. Yeah, no, I I hate to be constantly pessimistic too, but it. Does, I mean, I don't disagree with anything you've said. It does seem the the odds the odds that uh, I think small farmers and family farmers are up against right now are are pretty steep ones. Uh, 
Pessimistic or not, Jim Goodman, we always appreciate you joining us. That was the board president of the National Family Farm Coalition. You can find more of their work at nffc.net, or you can just Google National Family Farm Coalition. It'll take you right there. Jim, thanks as always for joining us. We are going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits. We are live in D.C. We're on Radio Sputnik. We will be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. Now we are going to take a look at the hearings that were this week, the January 6th committee hearings and the public testimony. And, you know, as as we come to the end of this week's hearings, what kind of picture is being painted about the role of Donald Trump and his aides and what kind of legal jeopardy they might find themselves in? We are joined now by Brian Wright. He's a California attorney and a former radio talk show host. Brian, thanks for being here. Uh Uh-oh, we might need to get Brian back. We're trying to talk to Brian Wright here, a former attorney and, and radio show host. And I wanted to talk about, you know, as we end this week of hearings, how bad it's looking for Donald Trump and some of the people around him. We've had Mike Pence's White House lawyer, Greg Jacob, saying that Trump lawyer John Eastman said in front of Trump that having the vice president obstruct the electoral certification would break the law. I understand that Eastman's justification is that he thought that was fine because the law was unconstitutional anyway. I don't know how effective an excuse that is. I want to see if we have got Brian Wright on the line. Brian, are you there? Yes. Yes, I'm here now and I can hear very clearly. Thank you. Terrific. I can hear you clearly, too. So uh, h- how about a week has this been for Trump and Trump's aides? Well, you know, it's very difficult to say because uh, in my mind, things have been bad for Trump for a long time. Mm-hmm. But Republicans like to just shrug it off mm-hmm. and do nothing about it, which really concerns me about the whole political process. But uh, I, I think what's being said is very bad. Yeah. And and I wonder, you know, this this sort of John Eastman is is becoming a major figure here. Uh, A a big revelation from this week's hearings is is him saying, yeah, you know, or or it being said that he he knew asking Mike Pence uh, to obstruct the electoral certification would be against the law. But he thought the law was unconstitutional. Is that any kind of excuse in a court of law? Oh, I think it's unconstitutional. Yeah. Uh, No, thinking, first of all, thinking something and it being reality are two different things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Frankly, if you look at the Constitution, there's one sentence in there about this process, and it is, the president of the Senate shall, in the president of the Senate and and the House of Representatives, open all the certified, uh, open all certificates and the votes shall be counted. Yeah. Period. Yeah. So there was a law passed in 1887 that laid out more specifics about what that process should be. Mm -hmm. So how in the world can you argue that the law violates that sentence in the Constitution? I want to ask also, I mean, aside from political will, which is a sort of separate question I want to get into, from what you've seen, how, how serious a case have they already been able to build against Trump? 
right? I mean, as it becomes clearer that he was pressuring Mike Pence to do something that even his own aide said Pence didn't have the power to do, it becomes harder to say that what happened on January 6th was just a sort of shambles, uh, you know, uh, that went awry, right? Even if that is true for what was happening outside the Capitol, Trump was, I think they have really done a pretty good job of making the case that Trump was really uh, was actually actively trying to get people to do things that he knew to be illegal. And so I wonder what what you what criminal charges you think plausibly could stick to the president and his aides at this point, even just in theory, right? Political will aside. Yeah, I, I think it would have to be related to sedition, uh, incitement, perhaps, mm-hmm. and uh, attempt to obstruct the electoral process. Mm-hmm. And conspiracies to do all those things, I would imagine, right? If he's uh, getting other people to, to help him in the job. Absolutely. And frankly, if, I think if you look at the lead up to January 6th, that clearly there was something afoot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just can't imagine that they just gloss over this and let it go. Yeah. And I mean, this is. I want to talk about the position that Merrick Garland is going to end up in at the end of this process, right? I I wonder if you think he could decide to prosecute a bunch of people around Trump, but let the former president off the hook. Uh, I don't know if he'll find it possible to conclude that there just isn't enough to go ahead with, but this is going to be, you know, this is going to be a consequential decision for the attorney general. Well, clearly it's going to be, but and I don't think that you can you can prosecute the underlings without prosecuting the head because the underlings didn't do this on their own. Mm-hmm. It was basically at the impetus of the guy at the top and trying to curry favor with the guy at the top. Mm-hmm. So uh, if Trump had been totally divorced from this or said no, don't do it, I don't think that it would have been done. Mm-hmm. And if Ireland kind of just shrugs his shoulders like everyone else has done, and at least the Republicans have done, I think he was a mockery of the system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to either indict others and not indict Trump, or to uh, just let the whole thing go. Mm-hmm. Part of us, we're starting to treat the president like a god. Mm-hmm. And if you think about what happened back with Watergate and what is happening now, the politicians have lost their will at least some of them have. Back in, in the day, the Republicans took a, a, a stance against Nixon. Mm-hmm. But now all they're doing is kissing uh, certain body parts. <laughs> yes, there are words we can say on the radio and there are ones we can't. You don't take your pick as you imagine those parts in your mind. I wonder, um, I wonder how much the possibility of unrest should and will affect uh, Merrick Garland's decision. Uh, I was a little bit surprised to see uh, some former U.S. attorneys saying if Trump is indicted, you should expect civil unrest or maybe even civil war, which I feel like is uh, probably taking it too far. But I don't know. This was uh, a former U.S. attorney who is uh, speaking to NBC News. I don't know if the former president's supporters have that much fervor still. Uh, but I, you know, I, I don't know. And, and so I wonder if you think uh, if you think that we would see serious unrest if there was a Trump indictment and also how much that should weigh into Merrick Garland's decision. I think there's a possibility because we have lots of nutcases in mm-hmm. this country and probably around the world, uh, as we've seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's distressing to think about it, but I think it is a possibility. We have the Proud Boys and these other characters mm-hmm. who 
were very adamant about their ways, and uh, of course they're carrying their guns. Mm-hmm. So, but I'm also the type of person who believes that you have to stand on principle. Mm-hmm. Can't say, oh, you know, this situation is so bad that uh, even though it's a bad, I'm going I'm to let it go. Mm-hmm. Because then you encourage things to be worse. In other words, if I'm going to do something questionable, I'm going to do it in such a way that everything is so dangerous that they're going to let me go because they're afraid. Mm -hmm. I don't think we can do that. And I, for one, am a person who stands on principle and believe that you do the right thing regardless of the consequences Mm -hmm. and regardless of the consequences even to yourself as an individual because mm-hmm. you have that standard that you should uphold. Yeah. I mean, the other question is, I mean, we could also just as easily say, uh, you know, should we fear unrest if Trump isn't indicted, right? From people who have watched this, you know, drama unfold and, and who think that there has obviously been criminal activity. But the other question is, so like that, that seems a risk of having no prosecutions. But also, you know, is it more dangerous to, to air all of this, have no indictments and no prosecutions at the end uh, and feel like what has happened is we have sort of formalized a process where, you know, we've already gotten used to the idea that American presidents can launch illegal wars with no repercussions. They can, you know, sit uh, as the commander in chief of troops who commit war crimes uh, with impunity. And, you know, apparently they can also uh, appear to conspire to subvert American democratic processes within the country and, and face no consequences like that. I think that also seems to be a, a dangerous precedent to be setting. Well, I think you really hit the nail on the head there because that is, I think, a more dangerous precedent to be setting. Mm-hmm. And uh, going back to the illegal war thing, I was dis- disappointed that uh, George W. wasn't called to called on the carpet for the Iraq thing. Mm-hmm. That was unforgivable to me. But unfortunately, we have this thing of glossing over things that the president does. We stand in too much awe of the president. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The president is a guy or a woman at some point. Mm -hmm. And if they do things wrong, they need to be called on the carpet. We can't just say, oh, they're the president. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I know it. It is sort of like ah, uh, well, it's it's the kind of like the uh, the too big to fail bailouts that we all uh, endured, you know, about a decade ago, right? At some point, at some point, being powerful and important shouldn't be a shield against uh, doing the things that it's been put in your power to to do. You know what I mean? I also I want to return to uh, Watergate, which you've mentioned because the the Hill today had a story setting up post-Watergate reforms as perhaps providing the structure for a prosecution of former President Trump. And there is, of course, a lot of comparison of this situation to Watergate. And uh, and so I, I invite you to make those comparisons. But I also wonder if we are forgetting about another relevant period a little bit closer to us, which is the 2000 election, you know, and I I wonder if Watergate establishes a structure for theoretically prosecuting former presidents. Does the 2000 election provide a a history for ignoring their wrongdoing? Well, I'm not quite sure how the 2000 election connects here in that subject, Mm -hmm. because the 2000 election was not with an incumbent. It was two guys running for the first time. Mm -hmm. And as far as I understand, the controversy of the 2000 election was the Florida recount, where George W. won by 537 votes, Mm -hmm. whereas he lost the general election by over half a million. 
So they had started down the road, the Florida courts and legislature had started down the road of a recount, and it was the U.S. Supreme Court put a kibosh on it because of the way what I view are technicalities. Mm-hmm. So I'm not quite sure how that in particular relates to Watergate or what we're seeing today. Mm-hmm. Well, how should Watergate provide a lens through which we view this? Well, to me, the Watergate thing was doing the right thing, that the uh, the powers that be in the Republican bar- Party told Nixon, look, if you don't step down, we are going to come down on you. And uh, so they, in my view, stood on principle. Mm-hmm. They should have, which is not happening with politicians today. Mm-hmm. There's something that has happened in the nature of politics in this country over the last 50 years that has taken us in a bad direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not really sure what it is. Is it, is it the Internet? Is it the fact of being any, any, any Tom, Dick, and Harry being able to communicate their thoughts that are now allowing what I consider nutcases to be elected to Congress? Yeah, there is something. I think we all sort of agree. There's something has shifted in a very bad way, but what exactly it is, is very hard to identify. I want to want I want to ask you one last question on, uh, you know, on sort of uh, parallels between Watergate and and January 6th and and these uh, hearings. You know, uh, does this set up a situation where President Joe Biden is going to have to consider whether to pardon Donald Trump? Uh, and and what do you think would be the result if if that's what's end up what ends up happening? I can't imagine that happening in a million years. Mm-hmm. And the the pardon situation back in Watergate was a pre-established thing. It was Nixon and Ford had an agreement mm-hmm. and said, "I'm going to step down. You're going to be president on on the condition that you pardon me." Mm-hmm. Both people being of the same party, of course, Ford was the vice president, uh, that they figured, and at least the the narrative was that prosecuting Nixon would would be divisive. And whether that was the appropriate decision or not, I don't know, but at least it set the framework for Nixon being willing to step down. Mm -hmm. Now, with Trump, we don't have that issue in that he's not a sitting president. Right, right. Brian Doyle, we are going to have to, uh, Brian Wright, sorry, we are going to have to leave it there. That was Brian Wright, attorney in California, former talk show host. Thanks so much for joining us, Brian. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte, and we are getting more into, you know, some domestic news, some international news. We're going to talk more about Julian Assange and efforts in the United States to even further restrict access to government information. We are going to talk a little more about the January 6th hearings. We're going to talk about the state of Afghanistan. We'll talk about Ukraine getting the go-ahead to try to join the EU, and there's a lot more coming. Joining me for it is Ted Rawl. He's an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. He co-hosts the DMZ America podcast, and his latest book is The Stringer. Ted, thanks for joining me. 
Thanks for having me, Michelle. So, you know, I I had wanted to talk to you about this Senate bill that would further limit who can access government records through Freedom of Information Act requests already. Right. We we learned about this story a couple days ago and thought we'll bring it up with you. But then, of course, you know, today's decision on Julian Assange gives us an even more pertinent lens, uh, I think, through which to view it. So this bill was supposed to be introduced this week by Marco Rubio and Tom Cotton. It would restrict FOIA requests to American citizens, permanent residents, companies headquartered here, and then some other limited categories of people. It would entirely bar subsidiaries, any subsidiaries of companies based in China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, Cuba, Syria, or Venezuela from filing FOIA requests. And it would make it a criminal offense for any intermediary, such as a law firm, to request records on behalf of an otherwise prohibited person or entity. And I wonder what impact do you think restrictions like these would have? I mean, off the top of my head, I can see it having a very serious effect on foreign people or companies who are being sued in the United States. Yeah, that's right. Uh, foreign. You can think of, a, for example, a foreign individual who is uh, being prosecuted for a crime, uh, you know, in the United States, uh, from, say, Venezuela, mm-hmm. and through no fault of their own, they might not be able to request, for example, their own police, their arrest records. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Freedom of Information Act is, you know, it, it's a really nice-sounding law. The truth is it's very weak and, mm-hmm. uh, and and arbitrarily enforced. I mean, it's gotten to the point where, like, for example, when I was uh, in my contretemps with the LAPD a few years back and I needed to to get file a Freedom of Information Act request, I had to get a fellow journalist, Jason Leopold, uh, who used to be advice. He's an expert on, on filing FOIA requests. He knows just how to do it. The truth is, though, the law is very plain. Uh, you know, you should be able to. You don't need to fill out a special form. It's just it should be very plainly worded. You mm-hmm. can literally say, "Hey, uh, NSA, uh, you know, please send me anything about Michelle Witte that you have on file." But yeah. I guarantee you, if you do that, uh, you're you're not going to get anything. They're just going uh, to you're either you're either going to get a, a letter back that says, oh, we don't think we have anything or uh, we might have some stuff. But you're going to have to give us some time. Oh, yeah, we, we don't have anything. Or uh, you're going to pay us like a dollar a page to copy it. I mean, they make you jump through so many hits or, or like which Michelle Witte or, you mm-hmm. know, like it, it's they play so many games with this law that it's not very effective as it is. So trying to, you know, I'm concerned about any effort to water it down. Also, obviously, once you have a preferred list of uh, countries and uh, in, and citizens who can access FOIA, mm-hmm. uh, that means others can't. And you know, it's, just, it's a classic slippery slope argument. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the law, the bill as written, sounds plainly unconstitutional uh, because it. I think it's... Uh, it, it because of the because of the distinction that it makes between uh, giving rights to people of different uh, backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it it's uh, you're, you're just I don't think it would pass Supreme Court muster. But that doesn't st- that wouldn't stop it from being the law of the land for many many years before mm-hmm. a case was eventually filed and made its way all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, I think it has uh, you know. It, it has profound implications. And I, I wonder what chances you think it has of actually making it through this Congress, because I, I genuinely don't know. You know, I, I think I'm not sure that I see any particular appetite uh, to you know protect transparency. But it's, you know, as you say, it is uh, does seem to be just con- unconstitutional on its face. 
you know, are, are you going to have enough people voting for it to get it through? I'm not sure. Well, I mean, you know, I think the only the only protection we have at this stage is that Democrats will just vote against anything that Ted Cruz uh, proposes. Right. So there's so there's that. Mm-hmm. But that won't be true uh, or that won't be enough after January 1st when the Republicans take over both houses of Congress. Mm-hmm. So at that point, uh, you know, I think Republicans will jam this through. I, I think it's uh, there is not really any interest at all in protecting Americans, uh, you know, a, trans, a right to transparency in government. Look at what they, uh, look, you know, look at the uh, USA Patriot Act. This is that kind of thing passed in the dead of night, almost unanimously by both parties. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when it, when it comes to uh, reducing our right to see what our own government is doing with our own tax dollars, uh, you know, we have a lot of bipartisanship. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And also, you know, on Assange, of course, Assange's WikiLeaks didn't, uh, you know, its most explosive uh, publications weren't made through FOIA requests. But I think it is worth noting that it is a foreign national who has helped publish some of the most important and damning information about U.S. imperial wars and the people who launch them and who manage them. And it does feel, you know, Sadly, apropos that we have this bill being introduced as we have Assange a step closer to being put on trial in an American court. And so, yeah, I wonder, you know, those two events dovetailing, what kind of future that points us toward? Yeah, it's looking pretty bleak. Um, Authoritarianism is definitely upon us. And it's not necessarily courtesy of Donald Trump and his uh, merry January 6th band. Uh, You know, this is both parties who are uh, who are on top of this? I mean, no, there's no appetite, uh, you know, at all for pardoning Assange. Although, you know, it's a funny thing about a pardon is that it requires uh, the 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 person who receives it to admit wrongdoing tacitly, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of a, a weird thing. I mean, what you would really want is an exe- is is for the president to lean on the DOJ and just say, just stop. Uh, the United States government is no longer interested in uh, pursuing this case, but that's not going to happen. Um, I mean, everybody should be should be up in arms about what's happened to Julian already. Mm-hmm. I mean, he the man is in very bad health. Uh, he's obviously been abused uh, in the British court in the British uh, uh, jail where he's being kept, and. Uh, his rights were violated. He was dragged out of sanctuary of a of an embassy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, he's he's being char- essentially charged with being disloyal to a country that he doesn't even live in, right. and that he's not a citizen of. Um, it's. I mean, this is a. I mean, the fact that like the media doesn't care. Uh, thank God, Amnesty International and a few other mm-hmm. human rights groups are are on this case. But but for the most part. Uh, you know, this is a, this is indistinguishable legally from the New York Times publishing the Pentagon Papers or the New York Times publishing the Edward Snowden revelations. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same thing. I mean, if he were granted a, a fair trial in any court in this country without the government's sum on the scale, he would walk mm-hmm. from any 12 jurors good and true. But that's not what he's going to get. Funny, I don't see any um, editorial here on the New York Times page about how what a travesty this is or in the Washington Post. And I haven't, again, 
haven't conducted an exhaustive search, but I haven't seen any statements by American politicians, uh, you know, other than to the extent, you know, Marianne Williamson ran for president. She came out and said, this is terrible. Um, and so it's it's disappointing, right? Because you do at least have a handful of Australian members of parliament saying, you know, calling on their government to intervene on Assange's behalf because he is an Australian citizen. You have a handful of British members of parliament saying this is this is disgraceful. Uh, zero American politicians from what I can see. I don't know if you found any, Ted. No, I didn't find any either. I mean, I was hoping to see something from AOC mm-hmm. or uh, Bernie, Senator Bernie Sanders. Uh, but no, um, I mean, I think what's, I mean, honestly, I do expect that the Washington Post or the New York Times will sort of editorialize in a lackluster, dutiful way within a week or so. We can like make a, a $10 bet on that if you want. Um, <laughs> I think you'll get one of those. Uh, we'll do that because um, there will be some pressure internally um, from, you know, with, there's a lot of journalists who understand the implications to their ability to do their job. I mean, a successful prosecution of Julian Assange means that every investigative reporter in the United States who relies on, uh, in part on leaks of classified information, mm-hmm. uh, risks prison. So um, that is, so they know that. And I think these media organizations will sort of, just to shut up any kind of internal dissent, will say something, but it won't I mean, be sustained and it won't and it won't be very strongly worded. We'll see. I don't know if you noticed this. I, I mentioned very briefly at the beginning of the show, this Washington Post um, editorial from a couple days ago on Shireen Abu Akla uh, that, you know, found found through its own investigation what everyone else who's investigated independently has found, which is that she was killed by a bullet from an Israeli soldier. You know, that she was shot to death by an Israeli soldier. Uh, it concluded that and yet still managed to basically pin the blame for her death on a Palestinian unrest and protest after decades of occupation. So I don't know. I don't want to. I'm not. I might take your bet is what I will say uh, about these, uh, you know, tepid editorials that might come out in support of Assange because they've they've covered themselves with shame in the case of uh, Shireen Akla. Oh, I was just going to say, um, I, I was kind of thinking about the, the editorial that they did about about her um, in the post. And they did sort of, you know, it was kind of weasel words, but they did, you know, they did, it, there's the implication there, like, well, it wasn't really quite right. And really, there needs to be a full investigation. So that was there. Yeah. No, yeah, I can imagine. They can come up with something about like, wow, you know, we have to protect. We really have to make sure we protect journalists and publishers. But here are all the reasons we don't have to protect this one. And then sort of dust their hands and walk away. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's I- true. I want to ask a little bit about the the January 6th hearings. We talked about them in the last segment, but uh, this poll came across my screen earlier this morning, and I want to hit you with it. This is a new Yahoo YouGov poll. It was conducted last week. It surveyed 1,500 U.S. adults and found this is for the first time, at least by this pollster, found more registered voters said they'd vote for Donald Trump than they would for Joe Biden. It was 44% to 42%. And it is interesting to me that this is happening just as we have this public hearings that have been pretty, um, you know, I think painted a a pretty poor picture of Donald Trump and painted a pretty, I think, uh, increasingly 
convincing picture that he uh, could credibly be indicted for things like uh, sedition and conspiracy. And so, you know, it, it makes me wonder if if these. Well, yeah, but you know, I've been, I mean, I've been saying, you know, all along that this was not going to move the needle. Everybody's if there's anything or anyone that everybody that people already have a firmly set opinion on, it's Donald J. Trump. Mm -hmm. I mean, people. They, they 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 feel the way they feel about him. There's just no one on the fence about him. Um, so, I mean, people, it's not like there's anyone who's like, well, you know, hey, wow, he really did know a lot about January 6th. I mean, the people who are on his side, they they knew or they didn't care. It, it's and you know certainly, look at bare minimum, uh, we know that Trump's you know January 6th was for Trump. It was about Trump, and he was a, uh, and he certainly was happy to have it happen. Mm -hmm. So, you know, th th there's not to me a lot of daylight between that thought and the thought that he like helped plan it, or what you know that people close to him helped plan it. Mm -hmm. To me, it's like that's th those are details. They're interesting. Uh, you know, I was a history major. I like to know how things happened in the room where they happened, but otherwise. I don't think it's it's not surprising at all. I I, I do think Donald Trump would defeat uh, Joe Biden in a rematch. And if you and if it's this if it's you have a two point advantage this far out, bear in mind that historically the the advantage for Republicans always increases as you get closer to election day. It never fails uh, for a, for a Democrat to prevail against a Republican in a presidential election. He or she has to be at least 10 or 12 points ahead, like this far out. And mm -hmm. then that, 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 that advantage will get whittled down and hopefully not completely eliminated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it does raise the question, do you think then, you know, g given his continued popularity, does that make it more or less dangerous to, uh, to not initiate any formal criminal investigations after this? You know, like if you, if you let this, this sort of spectacle play out, and then it results in in nothing except a lot of finger wagging. Does that just, you know, give fuel to to his, uh, you know, continued remarks that everything about him is just a witch hunt? Um, I don't know that that should be. An, uh, you know, what what happens? What What is the most dangerous course of action here for this committee? I think, is it to do something or to do nothing? It's a, this is a no win situation. Uh, hmm. Now that they have the committee and they've made this presentation, they look like idiots if they don't. Uh, if they don't do something, if they mm -hmm. if there are no charges for, or I guess if the DOJ doesn't do something, right, the committee itself isn't going right. to. But that's what we're right. talking the about. Right, the DOJ. Mm -hmm. But on the if Democrat, but then on the other hand, it will be it will have resulted from a highly politicized, inherently politicized process, mm -hmm. and there's no way for Republicans, especially with the benefit of you know Fox News at all, to view this as anything other than a, uh, you know, a partisan attack on a, a president, a, a former president. And then there's also sort of generally a systemic concern about less majesté, right? Like mm -hmm. once you start to get into the, um, the business of prosecuting and imprisoning uh, former heads of state, it kind of never stops. And you've, we've seen this in other countries. It's dangerous for them, mm -hmm. really. So you know, you could see it's really rough. I mean, 
I don't, I just don't think there's any good way out. I guess it's one of those things that's almost like it's a, it's now the ball's rolling down the hill and it's just gonna, we're gonna watch it bounce and we'll see what happens. I think it's almost like it's, it's a, um, you know, perpetual motion machine. It's, it's just gonna keep going. No, and of course, it feels really cowardly to even be asking the question, you know, should should we not do what seems to be uh, the correct, you know, the morally and uh, judicially correct thing to do because we are concerned about, you know, unrest among people who, who have different beliefs? Like, is that is that a cowardly consideration to take? It sort of feels like it. And yet, you know, I feel like there it's got to be on people's minds. I think you're right. I think it just is. No win for anybody, which is sort of uh, the American theme at the moment. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I would if and the other the irony would be uh, if the Democrats or the DOJ get were to get cowed by by uh, the prospect of unrest in the streets over, you know, unrest in the streets. I, I've also wanted to talk. I wanted to talk about Afghanistan for for the whole week. And I was uh, saving it for you, Ted. Lucky you. Uh you know, it is a terrible shame for our nation that I think we should not be able to look away from. Uh, the Taliban retook the country and its government with great speed nearly a year ago. The Biden administration cut off aid to the country and refused to recognize its government. The World Bank and the EU did the same. And so Afghanistan's uh, foreign assets sit frozen. Uh, State Department spokesman Ned Price at the time said not another cent will go to a future government of Afghanistan that doesn't uphold basic human rights. And, you know, a a Washington Post story uh, from earlier this week uh, really gives a great example of what U.S. sanctions actually do, which is to affect remarkably little when it comes to changing governments, but to inflict terrible suffering on ordinary people. And so in this post story, you can read about an Afghan man who lost his job after the transition of government and uh, describe his children screaming from hunger at night. According to the U.N., nearly half of all Afghans don't have enough to eat. So the United States spent 20 years in that country, left it a wreck, and now we are turning the financial screws on Afghans passively from abroad. And it just his story is really moving. And it's a sequence of events that I feel like sh- it should be intolerable. And I wonder if you can give us, you know, any more of a picture of what is happening in Afghanistan now and, and who we should hold responsible and who we should look to to offer some relief. Well, we could look we can look at the United States government. Yeah. Um, as you know, Michelle, I've been to Afghanistan a number of times and mm-hmm. I've written uh, several books about it. So it's very near and dear to me, the people there. Um, and it is a uh, it, it is absolutely heartbreaking and disgusting what has happened there. I mean, we have the sanctions are completely counterproductive. Uh, they are driving the Taliban away. And there is a moderate, relatively moderate faction of the Taliban uh, that we have alienated and disempowered. Uh, What we should have done is offer to help them transition uh, with financial and other assistance, maintain full diplomatic relations with them. You know, if we're going to start getting into uh, being concerned about regimes that don't respect women's rights and other human rights, well, uh, you know, let's cancel that uh, that Joe Biden trip to Saudi Arabia next month. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't we don't really care about that. And we shouldn't claim that we do. Um, and, And I'm not even sure necessarily that it's 
that, you know, it's it's really our business. I think um, U.S. foreign policy should be to have close relations with every other country on earth that will have them with us so that we have connection, we have connectivity, we mm -hmm. have communications, we have influence. And we don't have that when you when you when you cut off a government from their own funds and, mm -hmm. you know, you give them you they literally have nothing to lose. We didn't learn anything from that's why, uh, you know, Mullah Omar ordered the Bamiyan Buddha statues to be blown up in 2000. He said you know, he, Afghans were starving and that the only things that the, that the West cared about uh, were, you know, historic relics, you know, basically mm -hmm. a giant block of sandstone. So to, to sort of send a message, uh, you know, big upraised middle finger to the West, that's why he blew it up. Um, and so, I mean, th this is the mentality we're dealing with. These are very prideful people. The government's not going to change there. Obviously, we tried to install a regime that worked and we failed. Mm -hmm. So this is the government they have. We should work with them. Um, you know, the, it is, it's unconscionable. We've stolen their money. President Xi said that uh, yeah. of China, that, that basically he's like, Chinese history knows all about highway robbers and that's what the US has done to Afghanistan. He's right. Um, it's a, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's the biggest humanitarian problem in the world. And no one in the US media really much cares. And it's a great article uh, mm -hmm. in the Post, but that is, they're few and far between. And, you know, man, yeah. uh, it should be, there should be more coverage of Afghanistan than Ukraine, because quite frankly, there's a lot more suffering going on in Afghanistan than Ukraine. And entirely, you know, man-made, you know what I mean? Like half of this country doesn't have to go hungry. Uh, and, you know, we it is sort of the the U.S. and this rules-based international order that it, it upholds uh, that is inflicting this upon Afghanistan with the sure knowledge, right, that this is not going to do anything to the Taliban, right? This is just going to make children starve to death. It's just, uh, it, it's incredible cruelty. Um, and just incredible uh, hypocrisy and and evil to to say no, we're just gonna we're just gonna do the same thing that we know doesn't have any effect and we know just inflicts harm on people and sort of whistle as we walk away. It's unbelievable. Um, Ted, go ahead, Ted. I keep doing this, but I please get in there. You know, the uh, the U.S. also had this influence where we transitioned their economy away from agriculture into other issues. You know, we 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 wanted. Afghan women to open nail salons, and we wanted, uh, you know, we wanted other people to start tech companies. And mm -hmm. like now, there's no, there's no food. They can't buy, they can't grow their own food, uh, you know, much less imported from elsewhere. By the way, the 50% number is definitely way low. Uh, the UN estimates that 97% of Afghans are suffering from hunger at this point. Oh, that's just awful. Let me ask you also, uh, this is sort of maybe a, a little bit wonkier, but I was curious your thoughts on a couple of new reports from the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. Uh, one of them, you know, w with a number of caveats about how difficult it is to assess some of these situations, et cetera. But one of them concludes that contrary to reports at the time that former Afghan President Ashraf Ghani and his senior advisors fled the country with millions of dollars, uh, according to SIGAR, it looks like the amount was more like $1 million or even $500,000. Um, another report says, unsurprisingly, that the U.S. Defense Department is not really doing all it could to prevent U.S. funds from going to our—this uh, is my 
editorializing here, our real or nominal em- enemies in that country. And, you know, the latter I, I could have probably guessed. As to Ghani, I wonder how much you think it matters, right? Was this this? Well, I mean, I wonder if you agree, first of all, and if you don't and if you think, you know, there's a chance that this cigar report is correct. You know, was that whole story kind of either intentionally or not like part of efforts to just present Afghanistan as inevitably failed? Oh, well, there's nothing we could do about it. Even the even the president is so hopelessly corrupt. He, you know, stole 10 million dollars on the way out. Was it actually more does it does it matter or not, do you think? I think it does matter. I also tend to believe these cigar reports, which I've been reading for years. I'm on the mailing list for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they tend to be far more reality-based than anything else that you can get. Um, the, you know, my experience with corruption in Afghanistan is that it's not so much the heads of state that do it, like uh, former President Hamid Karzai or Ghani. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really the people around them. It's their families. It's their it's the lower you know it's cabinet members, uh, former warlords who are part of their cabinet. Uh, those are the, that's where the, the corruption really stems from there. But there's always kind of this Western effort to prop to uh, to, to sort of propagandize against uh, our our, depo- our our enemy leader heads of state. Mm-hmm. Um, and say, well, look, they stole money, and you know that's that it discredits the whole idea of the project of their regime. They did the same thing with Mullah Omar, who I mentioned before. When they, they U.S. troops were shocked based on what they'd been told to see when they got to his house, he was living like an ascetic. I mean, he was like a monk. He lived mm-hmm. in a house that was unfinished with no windows. Uh, it was freezing cold. He had a Baron army cot. They they you know they searched all all of Switzerland and uh, and and presumably the Caymans for numbered accounts. They never found any. I mean, mm-hmm. basically, he was the, you know he was a, he was a straight arrow, a hundred percent. He didn't mm-hmm. steal anything from the people of Afghanistan. Period. And um, you know so they and even with Saddam Hussein, they would always talk about his palaces. Those were palaces. They were government ministry offices, uh, their palaces every much as bit as like the Department of the Treasury in Washington mm-hmm. is a Biden palace. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were just offices. So, uh, they're, they're, yeah, I think that level of propaganda, it's highly effective uh, because pe- most people are never going to bother to scratch the surface. Yeah, I, I agree. And I was wondering about that. You know, I, I think we've had a 20 year history in Afghanistan, right? Plenty of time to, um, you know, act like well, it's impossible to train Afghans to maintain planes and, you know, effectively it's we try we genuinely tried all these things and we just hit a wall every time. You know, the only way you can get away with making claims like that is by, you know, consistently seeding uh, any information about the country with this idea that every everything and everyone there is hopelessly corrupt. And so even though this is just sort of maybe one small part of that, it, it probably is important to drag it out into the light and, and see the, the reality. Ted, before I let you go, I want to talk for a minute about Ukraine. Uh, The European Commission today recommended that Ukraine and Moldova, but not Georgia, be accepted as candidates for EU membership. Uh, This recommendation was expected. It doesn't mean anything in particular. The real decision is going to take place next week when EU country leaders meet. And it's, you know, also true that this recommendation is just the beginning of a long process. And 
even the countries recommending these candidacies say they'll depend on serious reforms when it comes to the rule of law, media freedom, protection for minorities, uh, pervasive corruption. But for now, they get what European Commission actually called a, a morale boost. Um, and so I, I wonder, you know, there has been some skepticism, uh, including from Denmark and the Netherlands, uh, about these candidates and about Ukraine in particular. And so I wonder, I wonder what you chances you would give Ukraine and Moldova of getting approval to continue these processes next week? That's ah, a good question. I mean, I I do think, you know, there's, first of all, just parenthetically, uh, there's sort of, a, a, people are sort of thinking of this as shorthand and conflating the EU with NATO, right. which they're not. And, uh, yeah. and uh, you know, it, I'll just say, personally, I think the idea of Ukraine being considered a European country is a little strange to me. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I know technically it is, but, uh, you know, it's like culturally, it's not really, you know, I'm sorry, it's not Belgium. Um, but that aside, I, I don't think, I don't know. I, no, there's a lot of opposition. Mm -hmm. Turkey is against it. Um, there's uh, some Scandinavian resistance there. I think in the long run, I'd be, I'd be, it's anybody's guess. I think it's 50-50. It, they're far from a shoe-in. Um, and also, I think now with the apparent losses on the battlefield and, you know, even like mainstream corporate uh, types like Fareed Zakaria uh, sort of saying, well, we're going to need to bring this war in for a soft landing and mm -hmm. uh, the Ukrainians really need to get real and, and cede some territory to Russia, um, you know, it's an agree not to join NATO. So it's I think a lot of what you're seeing in terms of the solidarity with Ukraine on the part of the West, it, you know, is sort of res it's vestigial. It's yeah. res it's residual. It's stuff that was in the works a month ago when things didn't seem to be going, or at least they weren't. We weren't being told that they were going as badly for Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, but now that sort of you know the truth is out, um, I think there's more of a, a you know, I don't know. I I I don't think you know there's going to be you. <laughs> I think people are going to be looking back at you know festooning their 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 buildings with Ukrainian flags, you know, in a year and feel a little sheepish. Well, it's also, I mean, it's almost cruel that one of the concerns is that Ukraine won't be able to uh, enact the reforms it needs to re enact after the war when you know because it has been taking such a pounding, which is just like, oh, guys, that's just somehow that's especially cruel it feels like um but i also i saw your little uh your timeline of of uh media coverage of the war which is sort of like you know what was it uh march ukraine winning april ukraine's winning so bigly you guys may ukraine super winning june uh sadly ukraine lost july no no regrets whatsoever like no no shame whatsoever do you think uh do do you think we'll get any acknowledgement from any mainstream media source that uh, they got their coverage really, really wrong? Or do you think they will continue with this idea that, that in fact, there has been a big turn of the tide in the war and it wasn't just that they were uh, reporting non-reality for three months? I think even if they... I think even if they have to, uh, I, I think it would be even a lot for them to sort of backtrack. I think they'll just simply start reporting it in an Orwellian way. Like, you know, well, this is kind of like what we always said. You know, we've we've always been at war with East Asia. Um, you know, being a corporate <laughs> American journalist means never having to say you're sorry. And they never do. They just literally just change tack, uh, change, start reporting things differently. And it's like, 
it never even happened. Yeah, it's it's embarrassing. Ted Rawl, always a pleasure to talk to you. That was Ted Rawl. He's an award-winning political cartoonist. He's a columnist. He's an author. You can get more of him in his latest book, The Stringer, or at the DMZ America podcast. Ted, thanks for joining us. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C., and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte, talking now about a new report from just yesterday that should change our understanding of who is migrating to America through our southern border and and how those people are being treated. Uh, We're also going to take a look at the Supreme Court's decision not to make a decision about whether states can defend the legality of a Trump-era rule that the Biden administration has decided not to enforce. Joining us for these conversations is Maru Mora Bialpando. She's founder of La Resistencia, a community organizer and an immigrant activist. Maru, thanks for being here. Thank you. So Politico magazine yesterday, in collaboration with the Marshall Project, reported that since early 2017, one of every three people held in a Border Patrol facility was a minor. That is a much bigger share than has been previously reported, and the figure is based on analysis by the Marshall Project of previously unpublished official records. This is according to Politico. They say out of almost 2 million people detained by the Border Patrol from February 2017 through June 2021, more than 650,000 were under 18. And more than a third of those children were held for longer than 72 hours, which is the period that courts have established um, as uh, the limitation for border detention of children. One of the reasons that these numbers have increased is that this count includes children who came with a parent or with two parents, not just unaccompanied minors. And that, I think, is a is a key point here. And so I wonder how you think this should affect our understanding of what is happening at our border and who is coming and trying to enter the United States. Well, I think that this should um, make us understand that nothing really has changed at the border mm-hmm. the administration. Um, what we've, we've seen is... Um, that precisely the, with the past administration uh, uh, push to not let anybody in created a, a big crisis uh, at the border that was not necessary in the first place. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, you know, thinking about COVID-19 and how they utilize uh, this, this law, Title 42. And now, while well, uh, that's still in debate in the courts, um, or actually was said that the, the, the administration, the new administration couldn't uh, uh, stop the usage of Title 42. The administration does go ahead and, and tells uh, everybody, you know, now you don't have to wear masks, for example, in, in airports say, okay, fine, we won't. Uh, yet we have courts say, you know, you can't let people in because of COVID-19 and, and international travelers can actually uh, come without a COVID-19 um, test. Mm-hmm. 
So the, this means that the, the way the border is handling um, immigrants is very different because this, this is the population um, that is the, the population that has been uh, forced to migrate. These are low-income immigrants. They're mainly black and brown immigrants. And so the border is, use, is doing what they've been doing all along, is to stop um, people from uh, reaching this country, which in the first place where, like I said, we're forced to migrate. And we're talking about families in general, right? And, and this is the idea that I think most people forget is that entire families are leaving because they're being forced. In the past, like 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we had this idea that it was mainly male, single, young, that were coming to, to find job opportunities and then go back. Uh, now what we're seeing is entire families are deciding <laughs> that they have no other choice but to do this. And uh, the impact is that mainly is this huge population of children, right? Uh, not only on a company, as they call in, in the immigration law, uh, but also with with parents. And so the Border Patrol is doing what they've been doing all along, is to use, use this idea of family units to also expel them altogether. So when they expel adults uh, from, from the border areas, what they're doing is they're also uh, expulsing children. Yes, exactly. I think I, that's the sort of point that I was I was really thinking about. You know, there's this idea that the people who are coming over are individuals. They're single men. There's, it's easy to make them appear to be scary when you talk about you know whole families coming and to to the extent that you have a third of everyone. Uh, who's in border uh, customs and border patrol for years and years and years, right, uh, is a child. It's a very different picture of what is is driving these people, right? And, and uh, I think points to, you know, different ways to address the the push factor of migration. The other thing this report shows is that there has been very little change between the Trump administration and the Biden administration, uh, which I have to point out campaigned specifically on having a more humane border and having more welcoming attitudes toward migrants. Um, the report notes that the numbers of kids in Border Patrol custody peaked in 2019 under President Trump. They rose and have remained high under Biden. And when Title 42 is lifted, uh, because while the Biden administration stopped expelling unaccompanied mi minors at the border, it's still been using Title 42 to expel families. Um, so when it does lift Title 42, uh, you will see more and more people coming into the country and the administration having a year and a half to make changes at the border really doesn't seem to have done anything. This report notes that a border security blueprint was released by the Department of Homeland Security just a couple months ago. It outlines preparations for lifting Title 42, but it doesn't have any plan for how to handle children. And of course, the expectation should be that there will be many, many more of them. And so I wonder what you think this administration has done with this time to get ready for this inevitability and, and what it says that they just don't appear ready to do anything different. Well, they have increased uh, or they're planning to increase the budget for enforcement. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem that um, as people will continue coming, you know, the UN just announced there's, there's uh, what, 100 million uh, now people displaced throughout the world. Uh, a lot of people asking for refugee, um, for refuge. Um, what we've seen is that the U.S. keeps militarizing the border with Mexico, mm -hmm. keeps seeing uh, migration to the U.S. As a, as a matter of national security. 
and not as a matter of, oh, we were part of the problem. We created these conditions and people need refuge for mm -hmm. many different reasons. So their response is more enforcement, more militarization, mm -hmm. uh, more uh, surveillance. You know, they're, they're increasing tremendously the budget for uh, more um, technology. Mm -hmm. All these companies, private uh, corporations, are making a kill here mm -hmm. uh, beca because of this idea of uh, militarization, surveillance. Um, and so instead of actually, they, they have the money and they have the infrastructure, mm -hmm. they could choose to actually build an, uh, a system that when people come in, are treated as people, as human beings, mm -hmm. or as cattle, um, and that they, there's no need for detention in the first place, they could have done it. They have the budget, they have infrastructure, they have everything. Mm -hmm. But uh, what we've seen is that throughout the entire agency of uh, Border Patrol, ICE, the Homeland Security, the culture hasn't changed. And even though we have a new administration, we're well, a relatively new administration, and, and some good people here and there, new people coming in into the mm -hmm. ranks of the agency, uh, they have not been able to change the culture of these, these are, uh, agencies that see uh, people that are crossing the border as less than human. Mm -hmm. I think that is a good point. But I also think, you know, the Biden administration is a new administration, but it is staffed by people who have been in Washington for a very long time. Right. It's not a bunch of uh, fresh faces in most cases. And I think something that we've been talking about on the show for some time now is that somehow, despite that, despite having, you know, an administration full of people with quite a lot of experience in, in governance, uh, they seem to continuously fail to foresee obvious problems, right? Uh, there was a sort of fiasco with ordering COVID tests for the country. Uh, they appear to have been really caught flat-footed by Afghanistan, by inflation. And now if this, you know, if this report is correct, uh, they are going to be wholly unprepared for uh, what will inevitably be many more migrants and asylum seekers coming to the U.S. or being able to enter the U.S. after Title 42 is is lifted. And, you know, when I talk about prepared, I'm also talking about the, the facilities in which people, including children, are held. The report, you know, details terrible conditions, really cold places, uh, public toilets, meaning no walls for privacy. You just have to Go to the bathroom in front of other people. Uh, children might be left in wet clothes. They crossed the Rio Grande in for days. They might be given only mylar sheets as blankets. They might have inadequate food, uh, no access to medical care. One family highlighted in this report were they were separated, held in different facilities, and then sort of only accidentally reunited when they all individually ended up at the same nonprofit service center. And it just speaks to a almost unbelievable lack of structure and planning. And I wanted to I wanted to get your thoughts on that. I think it's purpose uh, is done purposely uh, complicated and in a way unprepared. Mm -hmm precisely continue creating a crisis where nonprofits at the border have to pick up mm -hmm. their results, right? The consequences of this. And it, this is, I believe, purposely done because it, it doesn't allow for these grassroots groups or these grassroots efforts to respond proactively. They are always reacting mm -hmm. to Border Patrol does with the, the people that are coming in. I had the chance, the opportunity to actually travel 
um, to the border. I was in El Paso in 2019, and I got to see when um, buses were just releasing people from El Paso Processing Center, and one one uh, nonprofit was able to rent a place last minute, created a quick uh, shelter for people as where they were coming in, and we were told, you know, they had like a, this this structure of how do you respond to this? How do we make sure people get home to where they're going? Mm -hmm. We make sure that people uh, stay together. So if we were able to follow this, this nonprofit leadership to say, okay, in a very quick turnaround, we're going to set up the shelter. We're going to, how come the border border patrol can do it? Right. Yeah. It's not that, that they don't have, again, the capability or they don't have the experience. I think it's purposely done because this, this also stops um, these communities from creating long-lasting change, which is what we want. We don't want people to be detained. We don't want people to having to go through Las Yeleras. They've been famous for decades. You know? yeah. Let us have, again, it was designed this way. It's, it's structured this way purposely. So they, they, things won't change unless we really start looking at the abolition of this entire enforcement system. And so if you are looking at the actions of this administration and not its rhetoric, what would you say it looks like their priorities are at the border? Uh, again, militarization. Mm -hmm. um, continue scapegoating communities that are forced to migrate to the U.S. Um, obviously, a continuing uh, the growth of uh, private corporations' uh, contracts. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and basically, just, just keeping the status quo. There's no real solutions that they're providing. I wonder what, you know... There's there's going to be blowback, right? If we do again, see we've we've seen high levels of migration, and they will probably get higher when uh, the administration repeals or lifts Title Forty Two, right? Which I think they should do. I, I agree, it doesn't make any sense, you know, to to have a you know decide that there's a public health emergency that applies only to some people coming into the country. Um, but you know, if, if all this is is just uh, a, a much bigger concentration of human misery right around the border. It would seem like it all it does is give, um, you know, give credibility to people like Governor Greg Abbott in Texas and other uh, right wing governors to say, look at this. You know, you you are letting people uh, sort of live in, in chaos and poverty. You don't have a plan. We have a plan. It's closing the border. I, I feel like the Biden administration is, is does not seem to be prepared for the consequences of what's going to happen. I think that the, the, that what we forget is that both Democrats and Republicans build this this infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So this is this is not for the Democrats to come and solve because they they actually build it this way. Um, at the end of the day, they they've done this before, right? We saw it under Obama. Mm -hmm. Obama was attacked by um, the Republicans, where quote unquote there was a crisis at the border, which we always have. There's always been a lot of people coming in. Uh, through the border for many years. We have organizations pr predicting this year we're going to have more, you know, thousands that we did last year. But it is it is remarkable to think that the Democrats uh, allow this uh, space for the Republicans to uh, attack them on the same things that have been happening all along, and mm -hmm. they, they don't plan on resolving. So at the end of the day, both parties are working for the same mm -hmm. the lead, right, and which is these private corporations. And so... It is funny to, to think that the Democrats are in the midst of a midterm election 
and they just keep doing the same thing that they've been doing, which is nothing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess it was uh, it was important enough to get the votes of you know immigrants and their families when Joe Biden was running for president, but in the midterms, absolutely negligible. Really, haven't seen a bunch about it. I also want to ask about the impact of the Supreme Court um, non-decision. Uh, on whether states can defend the legality of this Trump era public charge rule that Biden stopped enforcing. Trump had broadened the authority of the U.S. to deny visas or green cards to immigrants if they could be expected to be, quote unquote, a public charge, uh, which is to ever need food stamps or Medicaid or other forms of public assistance. The Biden administration stopped enforcing the policy more than a year ago, but a bunch of Republican-led states want to defend it when the administration won't. And the Supreme Court said, we're not going to decide whether whether you can do this or not. Uh, I wonder what this non-ruling says to you. Well, that they could bring it back at any point. They mm-hmm. make some tweaks to it and then... Uh, decide to attack that, the, the lack of, of this ruling. Uh, and, and, you know, I think that what is important is to understand that the ruling itself was misguided mm-hmm. because undocumented immigrants don't have access to most of those, quote-unquote, benefits that, that the, the Trump administration talked about. So that's for one. It was really, it was a very um, a facade, right? It was mm-hmm. the, of the theater of uh, criminalizing and scapegoating immigrants even further. So in itself, the ruling didn't make a uh, didn't make sense. Um, what it did, though, is that it scared people off to having to ask for their U.S. children those kind of uh, benefits that they're entitled to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, what it creates is uh, this the the possibility. This ruling, what it means to me, is that it creates the possibility that these these uh, uh, right wing. Um, States could bring it back, along with many others. You know, I think the little wins that we have got uh, during this administration, we lose them really quickly mm-hmm. uh, through through courts. And that's why what we focus on is is not policies, not litigation. We focus on cultural change because we can have really good results in the books. We can have maybe you know a good policy here and there, but if we have this culture that I was talking about, that one. Mm-hmm. Anything, it's, it's, at the end of the day, it doesn't give a result. The importance to me is we have to be clear. Like, we don't have power in Congress. Now we have a Supreme Court that is totally against us and will make anything possible for us to not win, not only on immigration, mm-hmm. you know, it's on, on, on uh, abortion, on, you know, women's rights, poor people. So, I mean, anything, anything that is just common sense, mm-hmm. we are losing at the Supreme Court level. So our focus should always be how do we, uh, the grassroots, uh, organized together in order to make la- long-lasting change without relying on the courts or, in this case, Congress. Mm-hmm. That was Maru Mora Vialpando. She's founder of La Resistencia. She's a community organizer and an immigrant activist. Maru, always great to talk to you. Thanks for your time. Thank you. We are going to take one last break here on Political Misfits and come back with a few headlines to head into the weekend with. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll talk to you in just a minute.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment all the way up to 2 p.m. on a Friday. I'm Michelle Witte. I've got a couple last headlines here for you. And first of all, I would really just like The Hill uh, to stop coming at me, personally attacking me with these headlines like a majority of Americans believe their diet is far healthier than it actually is. Shut up and get out of here. Nachos have a lot of vegetables on them. Uh, This study found that this is, I don't know if it's surprising or not, actually looking around, nearly 42% of Americans are obese, which is just too many people. Uh, And that has led to increased rates of preventable diseases like type 2 diabetes, stroke, and heart disease across the country. Um, Despite these proven trends, it tells us a majority of people in the United States think their personal diet is healthier than it really is, while they also frequently overestimate the quality of their diet. Uh, This study that was presented at the American Society of Nutrition's annual meeting surveyed more than 9,000 participants, close to 10,000, and found that around 8,000 of them inaccurately classified the quality of their diet. 99% of them overestimated the healthfulness of the food consumed. Uh, And so one of the authors said, Only a small percentage of U.S. adults can accurately assess the healthfulness of their diet. And interestingly, it's mostly those who perceive their diet as poor who are able to accurately assess it. So fine. I don't eat, you know, you guys all know that I'm a vegetarian, but uh, listen, I'm just not I'm not going to be shamed by this report going into the weekend to hell with you. Uh, Another headline that I think will be very interesting to watch is a crypto investor suing Elon Musk for $258 billion over Dogecoin, calling it a pyramid scheme. Uh, The lawsuit, which has been filed in New York, accuses Musk, Tesla, and SpaceX of running a pyramid scheme to inflate the price of the cryptocurrency. Uh, It also says that uh, these defendants falsely and deceptively claim that Dogecoin is a legitimate investment when in fact it has no value at all. Um, I think this is sort of an interesting confluence of events here. We have, uh, you know, we were a couple weeks ago on the cusp of uh, really formalizing cryptocurrencies further into the traditional financial sphere by, uh, you know, regulating them with this new regulatory package unveiled. But uh, right at the same time, you have this crash of crypto and now predictions of a long crypto winter and now a lawsuit alleging what, you know, people don't want to say, but that, uh, yeah, this doesn't actually have any value at all. I don't know if it is accurate to call Dogecoin a a pyramid scheme, although, you know, I guess in the sense that its value, it it is intrinsically valueless and its value increases only when more people, you know, buy into it and decide it has value. Uh, Maybe he's got a chance. I am not going to make a prediction, but I do think that, you know, it, it will create an interesting lens through which to view the way our government decides to regulate these cryptocurrencies uh, and, you know, what happens, whether, whether and which of them recover. The other interesting story uh, that I caught here is, of course, about the Biden administration and their attempts to manage 
the political fallout of spiking inflation. Um, I have, I think it is the the Washington Post, oh, it's Politico that has a uh, a story about the Biden administration considering things like rebate cards for customer or for for U.S. citizens, gas rebate cards. Um, but it is our very economic situation that is going to prevent that from being able to happen. Uh, This was an idea that they had a couple of months ago. They ruled it out then. They're taking a second look now. Uh, But we've got a shortage, a shortage in the U.S. chip industry. And so we couldn't even produce enough rebate cards to actually make this happen. This is according to, of course, anonymous sources who spoke to The Washington Post. So sort of an embarrassment there uh, in not having enough chips to even, you know, do this harebrained rebate card scheme. I mean, sure, send me one. But the idea that this is going to solve inflation is is pretty silly. Oh, and also, hey, uh, China launched its new aircraft carrier. So get ready for a whole bunch of editorials about how uh, China's military is, new, is too big and uh, we probably need to take them out. It's already happening in the pages of the Washington Post and we can expect uh, just a lot more of it as the week continues. That's all we got for you here on Political Misfits this week. I want to say thanks to all of our guests. Thanks to our engineers and producers. And uh, thanks to you guys for listening. John and I will see you on Monday. <laughs>